Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Insomnia Project. Sit back, put your feet up, put your hands behind your head and just relax and chill as we have a calm conversation and hopefully this will help you find your way to a restful, peaceful and possibly sleep-filled part of your day. Thank you for listening. I'm your host Marco Timpano and I have the extreme pleasure of inviting and having as my guest a good friend who I haven't seen in a while because he now lives in California, Paul P.K. Kingston. Welcome to the Insomnia Project. Thanks so much for having me, Marco. And Paul, I'm probably going to refer to you as P.K., which a lot of your friends call you, and so that's the first name that comes to mind. So I hope you don't mind if I refer to you as P.K. in this episode. Of course. Fantastic. Now, um, P.K., you have a love for weather. I do. And I need to know more about that. Um, I would say my interest in weather probably was first born when I was uh, a young kid. Um, my family has a cottage in the northern part of Ontario. And uh, growing up, you know, we would spend summers there. And uh, we have a property that's just on the lake. And, uh, you know, when I was very, very young, obviously, you know, as most children uh, are, when you hear a thunderstorm, you know, you, you get spooked by it. But, uh, but I very quickly learned to sort of embrace the sort of beauty of a, of a thunderstorm uh, and watching it like roll across a lake and being able to time out <clears throat> the uh, thunder and the lightning with the distance of the storm and so on and so forth. And, uh, and yeah, over time, I just, I, I think I, it very quickly became sort of the most soothing sound um, that I could possibly think of uh, to the point that I just, you know, sometimes we'll even put on artificial soundtracks of uh, rainstorms just as sure. a calming and sort of soothing thing if I need it. Have you noticed a difference in the rain pattern that you hear now that you're on the West Coast versus when you were here in the northeast part of uh, North America? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I will say, first off, being in California, you know, rain is a little fewer and far between. Sure. And it was back in Toronto. 
Um, but yeah, when the, when the storms do come here, uh, you know, it's like sometimes they, they are, you know, very, very heavy or extremely light. Uh, whereas, uh, back in Ontario, one of the, one of the most beautiful things that I used to uh, find about rainstorms was just the waves of them that would come in off of Lake Ontario. And, and, you know, you could sort of watch the gradual increase and decrease of it almost as if it was like a, you know, a well-coursed sort of symphony kind of thing of, uh, of percussion. And, uh, and yeah. So do you watch the weather channel? Uh, I don't watch the weather channel, but I do have like the, uh, multiple weather apps on my phone. Uh, so I can sort of track the kind of things that are going on. Um, I also spent a, uh, a good time, uh, back when I was in my late teen years working at a, a summer camp where I was a nature instructor and actually, uh, uh, was reading up on the weather in order to sort of teach kids how to uh, predict weather patterns while on uh, canoe trips and such. All right, then I need to know some of that. You know, I, I, I'll tell you, I'll share with you uh, a little story. When I was a tour guide in Italy, um, we would be riding bikes. It was a, a cycle cycle tour that I was I was leading, and weather would be predicted for the next day. Rain, I should say, not weather, but rain was predicted and heavy rain. And I remember talking to a friend who was um, who was around, a, a colleague, let's say, and I was like, it's supposed to rain really bad tomorrow. And she turned to me and she said, hang on, I'm going to call my friend who's a fisherman. And I was like, what? She's like, if anyone knows what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, it will be the local fisherman. <laughs> and she called me back and she said, the weather's going to be fine. And I said, but all the newscasts are saying it's going to be terrible. And, and she was like, mark my words, it'll be fine. And sure enough, we had perfect riding weather the next day. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it goes to show you can never really underestimate the, uh, the knowledge and, and of those who live it. You know, I mean, uh, a lot of uh, weather broadcasts are done you know, these days by computer and data and so on and so forth. But Weather really is one of the uh, very unpredictable things that are out there, and things can shift in a matter of moments, uh, depending on various factors. And and so it is one of those things where it's like, you know, learning to be able to spot patterns in weather as opposed to relying on data can sometimes actually be much more reliable uh, in regards to sort of figuring out what might be coming. So what are some ways in which you learned that you can predict the weather? Uh, well, one, one thing that, uh, I, I have, that has really, really stuck with me, uh, for a long, long time is, uh, you know, you know how sometimes you'll be walking outside, it'll be a cloudy day, but then all of a sudden there'll just be this yellow light, like the sky takes on a bit of a yellowish hue. That is typically the sign of an impending storm. But okay, but you can kind of call it the, uh, for lack of a better term, I've I've often referred to it as a golden sky, uh, because it's almost as if it's like letting everyone know with a cautionary light that it's like it's all inside, oh. sit back, enjoy. I'm about to put on a show, kind of thing, you know. Um, and uh, and it's just it, it's kind of cool that it, that even weather will give its own styles of warning, you know. Um, uh, very similar to that, you know, uh, uh, even uh, one thing that I, I, I think a lot of people have a tendency to sort of uh, see such things as like cumulonimbus clouds, like those are your massive, massive storm clouds, right? The ones that uh, go thousands, tens of thousands of feet high in the air. 
Right. Um, and typically what those are is actually just a culmination of your cumulus clouds, which are your standard sort of puffy white ones that we look up in the sky and we say, oh, I see a rabbit or, oh, I see, you know, the CN Tower uh, or we find the imagery in those clouds, you know. Uh, but when those gather together, you know, they can create a fairly ominous looking storm cloud. But I will say this as somebody who has also traveled from above or from a distance, those clouds can be some of the most beautiful, most majestic imagery you've ever seen. Just this towering, towering, you know, puffy, almost like a, a stack of whipped cream on the sky, you know? Um, and while it may be gray and rainy underneath, I mean, above, it's just pure beauty. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was always told, you know, when you see certain leaves on plants, if they're flipped over and you see their underside, in other words, some of them have more of a whiter hue on the backside of the leaf, mm -hmm. that means rain is coming. Yeah, no, and, it's, and it is one of those things, too, where it's like, I mean, even stepping away from the weather itself, uh, plant life is another great example of like, you know, how just nature seems to work in sync with one another. Uh, uh, you know, whether it's animals or plants or whatever the case might be, it's like they, they are so in tune based on experience and instinct. And, and, you know, it's to be in tune with weather patterns, I just find is just like, it, it creates this feeling of, uh, I don't want to say, go so far as to say catharsis, but it sure. definitely creates, you know, a, a feeling of connection, uh, with the, with everything around you. And, and yeah, seeing things like plants turning over their leaves or even simply the way that plants will naturally lean towards the source of sunlight. Uh, if, if you watch even a house plant that sits in a window on a sunny day, there is tiny incremental movements over the course of the day as it follows the sun. Um, we, we used to have uh, uh, flowers back when I was living in uh, Toronto. Uh, I was living in a house in the annex. And uh, up the front porch, we had morning glories. And uh, I don't know oh, if yes. those flowers, they're absolutely stunning, but they only bloom in the morning. And then they close up for the rest of the day because they're essentially trying to capture a mixture of moisture and sunlight at the point of the day where dew is typically rising or steam is rising or whatever the case might be. Uh, and then they close up for the remainder of the day so as to pre protect themselves from weather patterns. And even just seeing that sort of instinctual, uh, uh, non-sentiary behavior, it's, it really is fascinating. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. So you've mentioned Toronto, and in case our, our listeners are like, what did he mean when he said the CN Tower? That's a tower that's in the middle of our, or in, right in the heart of our city that is a very, very tall tower. It was once the tallest tower in the world. Now I think it's just the tallest self-supporting self tower. I could be wrong. But having said that, PK, mm -hmm. do you miss the snow? Since you're not here right now and there's a bit of snow on the ground here, you're in sunny California. And if so, what do you miss from it from a weather perspective? Uh, when it comes to snow, I, yeah, I definitely, uh, I definitely do occasionally miss the snow i mean one thing that i'm sure a lot of people will make fun of me for saying is uh moving to california you sort of sacrifice uh the experience of seasons right sure uh every day sort of outputs very very similar weather yeah it seems uh paul that every day in, in california in southern california is a glorious beautiful day <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, uh, this past week has been a little bit on the colder side, comparatively speaking. Obviously, it's uh, not getting down to freezing temperatures, but uh, but yeah, for the most part, it's it's you know generally very nice and temperate weather. Uh, but you do occasionally, you know, especially as a Canadian, I, I definitely find that I miss uh, the experience of watching snowfall or watching it slowly accumulate. And I mean. Well, it does come with its fair share of frustrations, uh, be it ice mm. or slush or whatever the case might be. Uh, there, like, like watching one of those like big chunky snowflake days. You know what what they refer to as kissing snow. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. I know that is like you know the snowflakes that land on your eyelashes and just sit there yeah. in big clumps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kissing yeah. snow. I love that. Yeah. Well, okay, well, and and I believe it earned its name mainly because it is just so atmospheric, right? And, right. Of course. And you know, whenever movies have those like, uh, you know, those kissing scenes uh, around Christmas or whatever the case might be, usually they opt for whether it is synthetic or real. Usually they're opting for the thicker snowflakes to get more of an impact. And, uh, and yeah, even just that name of it, I think it's just so fitting because it, there's a certain romance about the way that snowflakes will dance through the air, you know, um, especially when, uh, uh, before I moved from Toronto, we were living down by Lake Ontario, like right on the edge of the shore. And, uh, and with the lake effect wind that would come in, you know, sometimes you'd look out the window and it was snowing upwards, you know, these yes. snowflakes were sort of scooping up and all of a sudden heading back up into the sky. And that is actually, I think, one of the cool things that uh, uh, people don't realize is that the size of snowflakes actually is dictated by how many times it's cycled back up into the air and refrozen. And Oh, kind of like hail too, right? Hail does that same sort of thing. Yeah, very, very similar to that. Yeah. Uh, and it's just kind of cool to think that it's just sort of like it, it kind of creating its own snowballs in the air. You know, mm-hmm. well, it's too heavy for uh, to suspend in the air, and gravity does its job. But uh, right, yeah, it's it's just yeah. It, I used I did used to get lost in just sort of watching that beautiful dance. It's so funny, you know. We we are fortunate. We have listeners from all over the world who listen to this podcast, and I'm so grateful to all my listeners. Thank you for listening once again. But I often talk about very uniquely. Canadian or, you know, cold weather country things like snow. And so they hear us talk about these things in great detail. I think I had an episode where we talked about putting on um, hockey skates and the whole episode was talking about this, this sort of task of putting on hockey skates. But it, it makes me laugh because, you know, being in a cold weather climate and dealing with snow, we often have these sort of un unwritten knowledge of different types of snow. So if I was to say to you, you know that snow that lands and when you step on it with your boots, it makes a squeaky crunching sound, you would know what that what, what that snow is that I'm talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Or the or the kissing snow yeah. or that first little bit of snow that's kind of powdery powdery and it's almost like little balls and you could just sweep it off your porch you don't even need a shovel it's so it's so uh thin and powdery almost like dandelion puffs yeah but it always comes with a really cold snap it's always like oh it's cold and all it is is this these little tiny balls almost like dandelion fluff yeah 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 or or even just the term flurries oh yes yeah and i love that that term for flurries which we use to reference um blowing 
gusts of snow, correct? Is that is that how you describe a flurry? Typically, yeah, it's uh, blowing gusts, but also very, very small snowflakes. So it's a, right. You know, they they can sometimes move so fast that you barely register them and they turn them in the same direction. And I love when that that term, that word flurry, gets taken and used in our national sport, hockey, when they talk about a flurry of pucks heading towards the goalie. Oh, and you'll yeah. often hear that used. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I know that because my cousin always uses flurry for anything that's happening. He's like, oh, it's like a flurry of cars were coming towards me. Or, oh, man, I was swimming. It was like a flurry of boats were driving by me. It's like I say to my cousin, I'm like, you're always talking about flurries of things. He goes, <laughs> I guess I just watch too much hockey. And it's a really funny funny thing. But, you yeah. know, we're talking about all this weather and this imagery, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to a lovely segue to the fact that Paul Kingston is a prolific writer, and you have three published short stories, and you have three books, one of which you're you're giving your readers in in chapters right now. And PK, the names of your short stories are uh, there's Feast, Sweet Mary, and A Pound of the Devil's Flesh. Ooh, a pound of the devil's flesh yeah. sounds like a children's novel. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a uh, western horror, Ooh. Uh, which was uh, something that sort of jumped out at me as a genre that's not really touched on as much as it could be. Might we see some of these short stories or your novels turned into screenplays and on the screen, starring both you and perhaps your lovely wife, who we've had on the podcast as well? Uh, that's the hope. Absolutely. Uh, obviously, with this industry, not keeping my fingers crossed, but yes, for sure. I hope that is the eventual result. Well, I, I wish it for you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'd like to talk about your writing, if I can. Absolutely. All right. So what brought you to writing short stories and novels is my first question. Uh, yeah, so, um, well, uh, similar to yourself, uh, I have, I started with an acting background, uh, and, you know, working in comedy, uh, we naturally, you know, quickly discover that the easiest way to get ahead in comedy is to create your own work as opposed to waiting to book something. Indeed. Um, and so, and so, yeah, I, I started, uh, when I first moved back to Toronto from college, I very quickly, uh, started falling into sketch writing. Um, uh, and for those that don't know, that's uh, very, very uh, short se- comedic scenes, uh, often slice of life humor. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I started working on those. And the more that I was writing sketch comedy, the more I started to realize, you know, there was a potential career in screenwriting and so on and so forth. And uh, yeah, I, I, it was, I guess, around 2015 or 2016. Uh, I was still back in Toronto, and I decided I was going to write my first screenplay. Uh, I had skipped right past the idea of even considering uh, writing books or novels. Uh, And in the process of uh, writing the first few pages of my first screenplay, I I very quickly, because the scene was basically one man walking down the street by himself. Okay. And so it was uh, predominantly, you know, stage directions or, or, or you know, action uh, notations as opposed to dialogue. And as looking at that as an actor, I, I sort of looked at it and, you know, I, I have a habit of being somewhat critical of myself and critical of my work and uh, as any Canadian does. <laughs> and uh, I, I was looking over these pages and saying, oh, you know, this 
this is reading so heavy. This is almost reading like it's a novel. And then suddenly something clicked. And I was like, okay. First attempt was, you know what? I'm going to try to write this out in a literary sense so that I can go back and then harvest what I need for the screenplay. And next thing I knew, uh, as, as I was writing page after page after page of this opening scene, I started realizing this is, not, is less of an opening scene and more of a prologue. And so naturally, I just sort of sat there. Uh, I sat on that probably for a couple months, maybe showed it to like one or two friends who emphatically loved it. Oh, wow. Um, and so I was just like, okay, well, maybe, you know, I need to continue writing it this way to sort of see what it needs to be. And around that time, uh, a friend of mine that I was working with for a uh, comedic musical had actually introduced me to a website that they work for uh, called Wattpad.com. And basically, it's a sort of, I guess you could say it's a launching pad for up and coming literary writers. And so I decided, you know what, what the heck, I'm going to load it up there, sort of see what people think, see if it gets a response. And within a month, I had a couple hundred reads on the prologue and people were loving it. So I uploaded the next chapter and that got a couple hundred reads and yeah, and, and it just sort of uh, spiraled from there. And currently that first book in its completion is now sitting at, uh, oh, the last I checked, I think it was approximately 243,000 reads. That's amazing. Yeah. That's Wattpad, W-A-T-T-P-A-D.com. But we'll have it in our show notes in case anybody wants to take a look at what Paul is writing. That's so exciting, Paul. Mm -hmm. Isn't it um, just so overwhelming when you see so many people reading what you've written and how the reach that it has? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I'd, I'd say that's probably one of the most amazing things about that platform just in general. And I'm not trying to do a product placement. This is purely based on personal experience, but, uh, yeah, it, it. I mean, the, the like you said, the reach is sort of has probably been the most astounding thing uh, because uh, one of the features is that I can uh, check in with the demographic of readers that I have and sort of get a sense of who's reading this and where uh, they're reading it from. And for the most part, you know, I mean, I, I was expecting the majority of the audience to come from North America as a whole. Uh, sure. And while there are a sizable chunk of readers in Canada and the United States, uh, one of my top three countries uh, uh, for readership is Indonesia. Amazing. And I never saw that coming. And and go figure, uh, you know, it's like it's a sizable fan base. And it, the other added bonus is that you get direct contact with these readers. You know, they, they have the ability to comment on the book as they're reading it. Uh, or, or leave little thoughts along the way. And, and wow. it's just, it's, it's amazing because it creates sort of a connectivity to your fan base that uh, is really sort of unprecedented in regards to the literary world. I should mention your book titles are Goats from Lambs, mm-hmm. Butterflies in Glass Cases, mm-hmm. Michaela's Monsters, or mm-hmm. Michaela's Monster, rather. Yeah. And then you've got some short stories as well. Yes. So that leads me to... How do you go about finding the title for your books? Yeah. Butterflies in Glass Cases. Butterflies in Glass Cases was a little bit more uh, focused around, like I've spent the majority of my life uh, in various capacities working with kids. I mentioned summer camps earlier. Um, I've also been a uh, youth and teen improv and sketch comedy instructor for upwards of 11 years now. 
so I've, I've, I've worked with children for the majority of my life. And so I knew I wanted to write some sort of story that had to do with the uh, connection with children. Sure. Okay. Um, and this story specifically uh, is a little bit more derived from Celtic folklore. Um, and, and essentially what it is, is sort of your traditional approach of, uh, someone gets an offer to work in a remote home as sort of like a au pair, if you will, or, or someone to help oversee the house and assist with the children. Uh, and, uh, in this story, I I don't want to spoil too much of it, but in this story, basically the bond between this, this person who has moved to this remote home and the two children who live there becomes very, very, uh, uh, it becomes very a very strong bond between them, and there's suppositions about odd things that are happening around the home, and so on and so forth. Um, and that creates some contention between uh, this this lead character Patty Woodall or Patricia Woodall, who goes by Patty, uh, and Ms. P- uh, Ms. Pierre, who is the matriarch of the home. Uh, anyway, long story short, uh, uh, there is uh, uh, sort of the butterflies and glass cases was sort of intended to insinuate the beauty of childhood being contained by uh, stipulations and rules and so on and so forth. And it very quickly becomes uh, a focal point for, our ma- for the main character to want to essentially free these children of the thumbs that they're living under. Interesting, uh, and so that that imagery of a butterfly in a glass case sort of really, really jumped out at me as as really embodying that kind of mentality. And sure enough, midway through the story, there is actually a direct reference to one of the children who has a butterfly in a glass case. I see, uh, and yeah. Well, listen, you said to make a long story short here on the Insomnia Project, we like to make short stories long. Absolutely. So I'm going to take you back to that book, and I'm going to say. Where do you get your names from? I always find it tricky to figure out when I'm writing a protagonist or an antagonist name. Mm-hmm. You've got Patty. You've got Mrs. Pierre. You've mentioned mm-hmm. one of your books. I believe there's going to be a Michaela in it. Yeah. Hence the title. Where do these names come from? Where do you draw these names? And I find last names tricky. Yeah. No, uh, I've used various tricks over the years. Um you know, uh, because of the fact that I had, uh, uh, like, over the course of writing these th- three books, I had lived in two cities between two countries, uh, I did have sort of an added advantage of just searching street names. Um, and Ugh. often I'll just sort of look for off, like, out of the way uh, sort of residential street names uh, that jump to me that sort of speak to the voice of the character or the or the attitude of the character. Uh, but sometimes the names just come very organically. Um, so for instance, uh, uh, with Ms. Pierre, uh, and her full name in the book is Ms. Rosalind Pierre, uh, I just felt that uh, uh, the use of Ms. combined with, you know, the full use of Rosalind in place of Ros. And then right. Pierre, all three of those just very spoke very cleanly to me as a sort of stern uh, uh, approach to life, or or a very you know structured. Um, uh, partly because uh, I, I, when I was in college, I was over in uh, in Quebec, uh, and we were living in a English speaking town surrounded by uh, uh, the eastern townships, which are predominantly French, uh, very very French speaking. And uh, there is a lot of contention there in that regard. And, and so I knew I wanted to have some sort of French inflection upon it because to me, 
uh, and this is not meant to be a blanket statement. This is more based on my experiences while living there. Uh, it was just like, no, no, no. When you're, you know, out amongst the locals, you you adhere to their way of life, and you, and you try to speak French, and you try to uh, respect all that sort of thing, as opposed to you know coming in and and you know causing a scene, uh, as college students have a tendency to do. <laughs> sure, of uh, course, yeah. Yeah, so I, I knew that spoke to me in that regard, and and yeah, uh, but I think the biggest key to it is just sort of finding names that really sort of embody the voice. Uh, you know, if it's somebody who's going to be a little bit more relaxed, then they're probably not using the most formal version of their name. Uh, Fair, yeah. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned, um, you know, using street names, and both. PK and myself, we're skilled improvisers, and we've been improvising for many years. You you teach it currently as well. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I'm doing improv in the scene, generally speaking, I have two names that I'll use, which is <laughs> Franklin for male characters and Margaret for female characters. And I don't know why those names are the ones that come to me, but all my friends who I perform with always know that I use those characters. And one time we were performing in the US and Chicago and Los Angeles. And I said, I, I can't always use the same names. And someone said, well, why don't you use street names? So then all of a sudden, I started to have characters like Jane and Dr. Eglinton and Mrs. Cothra. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I was just using street names in my town that the people in the area where I was performing would not have, you know, realized that I'm using actual intersections oh, yeah. <laughs> as people's names, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, and it, 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 I mean, that is a, a really, really great way to do that. And that is actually advice that I uh, give to a lot of my students is I, uh, I tell them, you know, it's uh, like, don't default to the, I, I definitely have found like my teen students specifically have a tendency to default to the classics like Billy and Jimmy and those sure. sorts of things, right? Uh, and I just say to them, I'm just like, you, you know, you don't have to default to the easy names, just give yourself five stock names that you can pull from. Uh, or as you said, uh, go from something familiar like street names or, or company names or something like that, you know, it's so much fun. Oh, oh my yeah. goodness. Well, listen, you can, um, find Paul's work on his website, paulpkkingston.com. And that'll be on our show notes as well as, uh, seek out his writing at wattpad.com. That's W-A-T-T-P-A-D. Com. Once again, you'll find that in the show notes. Paul, it's been such a delight to have you. This 26 minutes just flew by. Absolutely. Or should I say, it was a flurry that came and went, <laughs> and I had a great time from top to bottom. Thank you. I did as well. Great, Paul. Let us know when you have more things coming out that you want our listeners to know. You're always welcome to be a guest on the Insomnia Project. Thank you so much. Absolutely well. And uh, thank you to all our listeners. We hope you enjoyed this episode coming from both Toronto, Canada and Los Angeles, California. We hope you were able to listen and sleep.